A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before I start, just a uh, small correction from last episode that a kind listener was uh, kind enough to submit and send in. I mentioned a story, a humorous anecdote with Ehud Barak and the Siyam Hashas. And I uh, incorrectly stated that he was the prime minister at the time. And an alert listener pointed out that he was only prime minister between 1999 and 2001. And there was no CMHS that took place then. So it must have been uh, slightly before that when he was just a regular member of the uh, Knesset. Okay, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, tonight, today, we're going to speak a little bit about uh, Asar Beteves, and interesting, um, besides for the regular and traditional reason why we fast in Asar Beteves, which is obviously belongs to ancient history and Chazal, so that's not the uh, regular topic of this podcast, but an interesting historical event took place in Israel in Asar Beteves uh, every year. And it's known in Israel as Yom HaKadish HaKlali, the day of the General Kaddish. And what in the world does that mean? So in the end of 1950, um, right after the State of Israel was formed, pretty soon after, there was a an issue that, fa- that, was, that the Rabbanut was faced with and that thousands, literally tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors living in the State of Israel um, had had an issue of when to commemorate the yard site of their loved ones who had been murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust. And they didn't know what to do, how to commemorate it. They didn't know when they, they were killed. There was obviously no grave, no matzeva, no place, no date, no nothing. So when what should they do? And the Rabbanut came up with the idea to commemorate Asar Beteves, which was anyways a fast day, anyways a day of somewhat mourning and sadness, to say Kaddish, light a yard side candle, to say Kelmale in shul, to do all the things that are done on yard sites that people traditionally do. And this would be a collective yard site. And that was the decision of the Rabbanut. Until today, it is commemorated in Israel. Now, 
just to bear that in mind, that it is the first day that is commemorated as a memorial for the Holocaust. The State of Israel, the government of the State of Israel did not make um, the Chav uh, Zion Nisan, I think, which is a day right after Pesach, um, during the time of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, as the Yom HaShoah. They did not do that until 1953, a couple of years later. And of course, the rest of the world, which now commemorates January 27th as the day that Auschwitz is liberated, the State of Israel did the time after Pesach because it was during the time of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. That's their Yom HaShoah Vehagvura, which is also a whole story in itself, how that developed. And the rest of the world, the United States, Russia, Poland, Germany, England, um, uh, the United Nations and other countries, they recognize January 27th as International Holocaust Day because that's the day that the Russian Red Army liberated Auschwitz and Auschwitz as a symbol of the Holocaust um, became the day of of the national commemoration. So the Rabbanot beat them all and they did it, and either way, the inter- sorry, the International Holocaust Day was only in recent years, the last I don't know, 20, I didn't look up the exact date, but it was only in in the last uh, few years that it became an, uh, official and gained in popularity. Actually, in a couple of weeks, they're making the 75th uh, anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and there's a big event going on in Poland with all kinds of dignitaries and lots of survivors and their families, but that's another topic. So the Rabbanot beat them all, and they did it already in 1950 because they were concerned with the religious needs of the Jewish people, not with a commemorative sense. People wanted to say Kaddish, people wanted a yard site, and therefore um, it became a very symbolic and powerful and in very many ways a religious day um, for Holocaust memory. So we'll talk a little bit about one aspect of the Holocaust and Holocaust memory. When we think about a day like Yom HaKadish HaKlali, so it's about... How do we create memory, and how do we commemorate memory, right? So here it's about Kaddish, it's a religious symbolism, and but it leads to the question as, what is, how is memory created altogether, and what do we commemorate 75 years later? And just looking around, and uh, it's interesting to note how, how, uh, how, how memory is preserved and created. And Holocaust memory specifically, very often, is preserved through survivor testimony, which is one way of preserving memory. Others through books, through research, through utilizing Nazi documents. And sometimes we have the privilege of using the victim's own words when we have something that they left behind. The best example of that, of course, is the uh, Ringelblum Oynik Shabbos archive in the Warsaw Ghetto, which was a valuable treasured shrove of over 35,000 documents, which, tell, which tells a story of a people, tells stories of individuals, of the individual archivists who contributed to the archive and the challenges of life in the Warsaw Ghetto during that time, which is really a fascinating story in itself, which we'll perhaps get to at some future time. But what in, what, what, what's, what's interesting about, about memory is how we, and the generations after, what we emphasize and focus on. I remember as a child growing up that the first few Holocaust books that I read were actually focused on rescue. 
And it was only much later on that I read about a place like uh, Sobibor, and even much later that I read about a place like Belzhets, which were death camps. And uh, it's interesting that the focus is on rescue, which in a psychological way makes sense. We want to focus on the bright lights, uh, the bright side of things, that there was attempts at rescue and there were great people who tried to rescue and there were even a few individual people who got rescued. So the question is, is the memory of, of a national calamity like the Holocaust a story of the survival, the miraculous survival of the few, either through rescue or just plain miraculous survival? Or is it the question of the destruction of the many and how that took place and how they faced uh, it in their last uh, days, months, and years during that time? So that's that's a good question. And, and, uh, and of course... Um, the the uh, you know we'll see we'll see how memory develops. It's not for any historian to obviously decide that. So, being that that's the case, I thought today to focus uh, actually on rescue. So, I'll talk a little bit about a story of an attempted rescue and a partial successful rescue, but that's something that has remained a very hot and controversial topic until today. And one of the reasons that. There was such a long introduction to this story is because this is a story that really should take several hours to relate, the story of Rudolf Kastner and his attempts at negotiations and eventually getting the Kastner train and all the ramifications of that train which reverberate with us till today. And since it's a topic that would take several hours to cover, so I wanted to leave just enough, a few minutes to get on everyone's nerves without resolving any of the issues. And this way it would be a nice um, topic for everyone to schmooze about over the next uh, time until we get around to somehow finishing up the story. So we have this this very famous story, and it's so famous that 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 nobody knows it. And, and uh, you know, we have the... It's a story that's been polarized mainly by political beliefs and religious beliefs over time. And uh, surprisingly, the story is not black or white, but somewhere in the middle. The truth lies um, somewhere in the middle, and perhaps the total truth will never even be known because the decisions taken at that time were decisions made based on the best information available to people at the time, and it's quite hard to judge uh, retroactively, what was the best and ideal move to make? But you have this fellow named originally Rezo Kastner, later Rudolf Kastner, and later Yisroel Kastner when he lived in Israel, who was a Hungarian Jewish activist, originally from a town called Cluj in Hungarian, Kosovar in Romanian, and Klausenberg in German, where the Klausenberger Rebbe was the Rav. And he moves to Budapest, he was a journalist. And he was an activist, he was a Zionist activist, and he eventually, during the war, he becomes the head of the Rescue and Aid Committee in Budapest, which was a Zionist-run uh, rescue committee to help refugees, to help border smuggling, and you have to remember that for most of the war, Hungary was not under direct Nazi occupation, so they were involved in rescue, they were in touch with the the uh, working group in Slovakia, run by Gysi Fleischmann, a Zionist leader in Slovakia, along with Rabbi Holber Weissmandl and, um, and Naska Numen and a bunch of other uh, noble individuals in Bratislava. And he, uh, Kastner, is working in 
Budapest in rescue activities together with uh, Joel and Hansi Brand, the husband and wife who were at the helm of the Rescue and Aid Committee in Budapest as well. And the rescue activities are raised up to a completely new notch when in March 1944 the Nazis do invade Hungary. And then everything changes for Hungarian Jewry. The Nazis are already losing the war. And they are now... Um, they now decide in a very ideological m- sense of mission in the the uh, final solution against the Jewish people to wipe out Hungarian Jewry despite the fact that the Russians are around the corner. They're losing the war and they don't have much time, so they n- try to actually expedite the process by attempting the deportation of Hungarian Jewry in a very uh, brutal and uh, vicious fashion, which begins on May 15th, deportations of Hungarian Jewry to Auschwitz go for about two months till July 9th, in which uh, those two months, less than two months, 437,000 Hungarian Jews are deported to Auschwitz, where over 80% are immediately gassed, uh, and they don't pass the selectia on the Judenrampa, the Jewish ramp at Auschwitz. So it's during this time at the beginning of this time, immediately preceding the nego- the uh, deportations, that um, that uh, that Kastner comes into the picture uh, with his attempt at rescuing um, a train load of Jews. He goes into negotiations with SS officers, and this is a a um, an attempt that had been used in Slovakia. Again, like I mentioned earlier, the working group. They had already, from 1942, maintained direct negotiations with SS officer Dieter Veslitsny, and they had seen to what they what they perceived as as results. Um, it's also debatable, and they the the idea was to bribe, literally ransom um, um, Jews by finding money hungry Nazis and that were willing to negotiate and willing to forego on the ideological um, extermination of the Jewish people in lieu of cash. And and the idea was that, that people could be saved in this fashion. So the Rescue and Aid Committee decided to do the same thing. And they were actually involved in a few plans. They are also involved in the Europa Plan, which was to save Hungarian Jewry, and Joel Brand was sent on a mission to Turkey, which was a doomed mission. He was arrested by the British, which is a whole story about how that turned out, um, also not not for now to get involved with. But ultimately what Kastner attempted to do, he was negotiating with SS officer Kurt Becher, who, because of Kastner's negotiations with him they, and, and his involvement in getting the Kastner train saved, which was over 1,600 Jews saved, so Kurt Becher extracted a promise from Kastner that he would testify on his behalf that he saved Jews if he would be tried in a post-war trial. Well, he was tried at Nuremberg, Kurt Becher, and because of a sworn affidavit that Kastner submitted, so Kurt Becher was acquitted at trial and went on to live a successful civilian life, became one of the richest people in Germany, and died just a few years ago, actually. He lived a nice, long uh, life, um, peaceful, and uh, that was the fate of uh, of Kurt Becher. Um, so, so... He goes into these negotiations with with um, the SS, and the plan was to attempt to save 
1600 Jews, eventually, the number kept on going up, he kept on trying to convince them to add more people to the list, and eventually the total final number was over 1600 that are saved, some of them from Cluj, from his hometown, many of them were his family and friends, and the division of the people of the train were several segments of society. There was a group of rich people who funded the whole operation, the way that Becher and his uh, his cohorts, I mean, uh, other people who were involved, was the Dieter Vislatseni that I mentioned from Slovakia, Adolf Eichmann himself was involved at some level, not at the direct negotiations, even Heinrich Himmler, the chief of the SS, was involved at some level, again, also not in the direct negotiations, and... Um, as Herman Krumi, other SS officers, not important the each and every name, but in any event, the the it had to be funded. They they were bribed. So wealthy Hungarian Jews, who many of them still had their assets, and there are no shortage of rich rich Hungarian Jews at the time. So they funded the operation, and that that enabled other people to be saved as well. So the the rich people essentially paid for the entire train. So there was a group of wealthy individuals. Then there was a group which was Kastner's family and friends, um, from mainly from Cluj itself. And then there was a group of Hungarian Jewish leaders, uh, rabbis, intellectuals, politicians, writers, professors, uh, people who were considered uh, great leaders of Hungarian Jewry. And it was important to save a segment of the leaders. So that's how the Satmarov gets uh, saved at that point by the Kastner train and Rebenus and Steif and other Abonim and of course other uh, Hungarian leaders, secular as well as religious, who um, some more well-known, some less well-known. And then there's a cross-section of Hungarian Jewish society, um, poor people, families, orphans, uh, regular simple folk who somehow got on one way or another, and uh, he nicknamed it the Noah's Ark of Hungarian Jewry, meaning it was a total cross-section of, uh, of Hungarian Jewry, and that was uh, his goal. And, um, and it sets out in the summer of 1944 from Cluj, then it comes to Budapest, and then eventually is sent to a special section in Bergen-Belsen, and several months later rolls over the border into Switzerland. Uh, he, he continues to work with Becher and try to save other Jews, some of them who were in hiding in either Hungary or Slovakia. In the last months of the war, he even showed up to a to the bunker where Rebbechober Weissmandel and the Strupka Rebbe and some others were hiding in Bratislava and was able to take them out. They were shocked to see someone, an SS officer, they thought he was coming to take them to who knows where, and instead they brought them over the border to Switzerland. So that was already in the last weeks of the war, actually, um, that he was doing, involved in that. And um, so it all, you know, essentially sounds like a good story, and that's the official story that's one side of the equation. What made it so controversial and everyone gets really uptight and emotional about it till today is is the other side of the story. Because what what was going on, what was the Kastner train being ex- saved on the expense of whom? Um, he visits Cluj, leaves Kastner, visits, uh, leaves Budapest and visits Cluj a few days before the deportations begin. 
and he doesn't tell anyone that the deportations are ready are ready to begin. Not only did he know it from his SS sources, but he probably this is almost sure he had a copy of the Auschwitz Protocols, which were compiled by two escapees from Auschwitz, which is also a fascinating story. There's recently a BBC documentary made about it. Rudolf Verba and Alfred Weitzler uh, escaped from Auschwitz to Slovakian Jews and made it back to Bratislava. A crazy story, one of the only and most daring escapes from Auschwitz. And they submitted a testimony that ran 40 pages long with detailed about the methods of extermination in Auschwitz and how they're getting ready for new deportations. They laid new track, they built new crematorium. There's maps in there, an amazing detail. The uh, report was immediately translated from Slovakian into Hungarian, uh, excuse me, from Slovakian into German, and uh, sent to Jewish leaders in Switzerland and Hungary, and sent to the West, sent to the Polish government exiles, sent to, uh, no, not the Polish, that was an earlier report, I'm sorry, it was the Bund report, 1942, a different thing, I got confused, and it's sent to um, the West, to England, to the United States, and it becomes an important piece of evidence about what's going on in Auschwitz. He has the uh, probably had the Auschwitz protocols, and and he also um, so Kastner has that, and he also is pretty uh, much updated about the deportations about to begin. And he doesn't tell anyone. He doesn't go and raise the alarm. He doesn't tell anyone in Budapest, and even more importantly, he doesn't go tell anyone in Cluj, which is where the deportations begin, is in the. Outskirts in Hungary, not in Budapest. The Budapest comes to uh, much later. So, why didn't he tell anyone? And the theory is is that the Nazis made the the, the negotiations contingent on the fact that he would keep quiet, because the Nazis did not need a Warsaw Ghetto uprising in every single city in Hungary. They needed the Jews to go quietly, submissively, and without making a ruckus. They didn't want them to go into hiding or to revolt or to try to run across the Romanian border. They wanted them to believe that they're being sent to labor camps in the east and not being sent to the gas chambers at Auschwitz. And therefore, they wanted things to go smoothly and quickly. They knew they, they, knew they didn't have a lot of time because they knew the Russians were right around the corner. And... Therefore, they say that, look, Kastner was a collaborator with the Nazis. He deliberately did not tell people what was about to happen because he wanted to save a few members of his family, and he threw in a few other Jews as an alibi, and therefore he's responsible for the extermination of Hungarian Jewry just as much as the Nazis are. Not only that, but since Kastner was a Zionist and a member of the Jewish agency, he probably was acting on orders, from the Jewish agency back in Palestine. So the ones who were truly responsible for the extermination of Hungarian Jewry was the Zionist establishment, and it's because they didn't want any religious Jews to survive the war, and so the story goes. So um, is, I want to preface something that's uh, interesting insight, that the great researcher Yeshayahu Trunk, when he researched the Judenrat, the Jewish administrative councils of the ghettos, he made a very, uh, very insightful distinction between two words in the English language called collaboration and cooperation. He was talking about the Judenrat, which is, again, very different than the story here. I'm just borrowing the idea. And he said collaboration is something that that uh, a person goes along, there are many like this, there are many collaborators, let's say a Ukrainian who went ahead and shot Jews at Babi Yar, 
A collaborator meant that they believed in what the Nazis were doing. They also wanted the extermination of the Jewish people. They also believed in the final solution, and they wanted it to get done, and therefore they actively participated in what the Nazis were doing. That would be collaboration. Cooperation would be that a person for self-fulfilling needs, they want to save themselves, they want to save their family, they're panicked, they're scared, and they go ahead and cooperate with what the Nazis are doing. But it would be hard to say that they actually wanted the final solution to happen, and they're trying to exterminate the Jewish people because they believe that it's the right thing to do. And that was he was saying about the Judenrat. It's hard to say that the Jewish Judenrats, as bad as some of them were, and some of them were pretty darn bad, that they were collaborators. At worst, some of them might have been cooperators, which is a fine line distinction. Perhaps some will think that it's a meaningless distinction. It's just semantics, but it is. It's there. That's all about a Judenrat. For sure, someone who's standing at the head of a rescue and aid committee it's a, it's a, a much tougher call to call them an actual collaborator and perhaps not even a cooperator. Perhaps it's making a decision that might be faulty and it might be, might be the wrong decision and it might have been better to do things differently, but giving the circumstances and giving the, uh, the knowledge and, and uh, facts that he had in front of him at the time, it's, it's two equally bad decisions. In other words, here he, here's a person who's in a pretty panicky situation. The deportations of Hungarian Jewry are about to begin. He can either raise the alarm and tell everyone and hope for the best that some people will hide, some people will cross the Romanian border, some people will revolt, and maybe some will get saved. Um, or to guarantee the saving of 1,600 Jews and keep quiet about the rest. And they're both pretty lousy uh, decisions. You know, ideally, we'd live in a perfect world where Jews weren't getting killed by the Nazis altogether. Um, but this is the, the best decision he can make. So how did it all explode? Really, the story of Kastner is not a story of World War II. The story of Kastner is a story of a courtroom in Yerushalayim in the 1950s. And what's incorrectly known as the Kastner trial was actually the trial of the state of Israel against a fellow by the name of Malkiel Grunwald. Malkiel Grunwald was a Hungarian Jewish journalist living in Israel. He was pretty upset that his family got wiped out, and he wrote he 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 he, he wrote up the story in 1953, if I'm not mistaken. And it goes to court, and why? Because the state of Israel sued him for libel. That this story is not true and, and, and whatever. Now, the state during the trial brings in Kastner as a witness. So it was never Kastner's trial. He wasn't the prosecution or the defense. He was a witness in a trial of the state against Grunwald. And, uh, during, and during that, 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 that his testimony, so the, the, the whole, the whole story comes out. Um, Malkiel Grunwald, had a had a lawyer that worked pro bono for him named Shmuel Tamir, who was a revisionist Zionist and had an axe to grind, a political axe to grind against the labor Zionist establishment, which had formerly been the Jewish agency and was now the current leaders of the state of Israel. And therefore, the trial went in a in a very um, high high uh, high media publicity fashion, and the whole story of Kastner broke and. 
it was perceived, the story was perceived not in the light of what Hungarians, the crisis of Hungarian Jewry under Nazi occupation, but rather in the current context of Israeli politics, which was full of religious against secular, which was full of rightist, revisionist Zionists against leftist labor Zionists, with the whole uh, bad blood that had existed in the 1940s between the Irgun and the Haganah and the Jabotinsky and the Ben-Gurion Zionists and all that. And it all came to the fore. It all came to the forefront. So that it, it really reflected more the politics of the 1950s, and that's how the collective memory of the Jewish people retains it uh, till today. So this is just, of course, touching on the story of Kastner, and the Kastner trial is a lot more to say and a lot more to elaborate on to be able to clarify and understand each of the uh, issues that were raised by his actions or inactions or what should have been his actions during that time. Was he a hero or villain? Unclear, perhaps neither, perhaps both, perhaps one or the other. And like I said, it's only enough to touch on the story to be able to get on everyone's nerves, and hopefully one day we'll try to clarify it more. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. For questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to all the places of note in Jewish history, and you can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. And follow us on Twitter at JSoundBytes, and I hope you enjoyed.